Good afternoon, everyone. It's Kate DiPietro, and welcome back to The Swing Set, a podcast by The Swing Agency here at Hofstra University. Today is Wednesday, October 14th, and today we have a very special guest joining us. Mark Lukashevitz, also known as Dean Luke, is here with us. Good afternoon, Dean Luke. Good afternoon. We're so glad to have you here on the podcast. So to start off, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do at Hofstra, and how you kind of um, got your career going. Wow, uh, lots of things. So um, thank you for doing this. I'm really happy to talk to you. Uh, I am Canadian born, um, but I've lived in the States most of my life, um, but kind of grew up all over the place. Grew up partly in Canada, partly in the United States. Um, I've been a journalist my whole life. Uh, After graduating from the University of Toronto, I worked at a newspaper, then a broadcaster in Canada, moved to the States, worked at ABC News for a long time, NBC News for a long time. And then uh, two years ago, um, had the opportunity to come here to Hostra and become Dean of the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. And I'm now in my, the beginning of my third year uh, in that role. Wonderful. Um, so take us back to, you could think back a couple little bit. You were a senior in university. You're kind of looking for a job. Can you tell us about the feelings that you were having and what led you to your first job? So I'll, I'll back it up a little further. Okay. Because I think there's a parallel to today and to journalism, which is what I was involved in. Um, I was in high school during the Watergate oh. controversy. And it is Watergate, it's Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein that ignited my interest in journalism. Um, because I think I was like a lot of liberal arts students. Uh, you know, I was thinking about, do I become a lawyer? Do I become a historian? Do I become a writer of some sort? You know, in the broad sort of liberal arts area. And then along came Watergate and these two crusading journalists who essentially exposed, at that time, what was probably the biggest uh, political scandal of the century and ultimately brought down a president, a corrupt president. And as I watched that unfold in 1974, and 70, you know, it culminated in 1974, which was the year of my junior year of high school, um, I said, you know, that is a cool career. You get to use your liberal arts training, you get to lose, use your brain, you get to do all sorts of different things. So that was the moment I decided I wanted to be a journalist. Um, graduated from high school, went to the University of Toronto. I did not study journalism. There weren't a lot of journalism programs in Canada at the time. Um, and I got some very good advice from a professional journalist uh, who I went to see when I was still in high school for career advice and uh, he said to me learn something about something become an expert in something and that might give you a leg up when you try to get into the business so I studied economics graduated into the teeth of an inflation and oil price crisis uh, in the late 70s and became a business reporter got a job as a business reporter um, so I was very focused on getting a job in journalism. I was not particularly interested in business or economics, but it got my foot in the door. And uh, I was a business reporter for about four years and then went into general reporting and television producing and never looked back. Wow, very interesting. Mm-hmm. I like how you talk about learn something about something. I feel it, like that's... It, it can be, you know, it can be a ticket. Look, I, I've said to to you and your peers here at the school, writing is a 
key fundamental skill everybody needs to learn to write because so much of our work these days is done in writing in the written word sometimes in a text sometimes in a tweet um, you need to work on the craft of writing uh, knowledge expertise in something just can give you that extra edge it can get you that assignment when you're a young journalist um, that expertise might be the reason you get the assignment and somebody else doesn't. Um, and I'll tell you, I, I had a second instance of that in my career. Uh, you can tell by my name, I am of Polish extraction. Um, I spoke Polish, still speak Polish, yeah. because my parents were Polish born. And I started to lose that in high school. When I decided to become a journalist, I thought, you know, this is not a skill I want to lose, having another language. Um, so I worked on it more in college. I subscribed to some Polish language newspapers and made a practice of reading them just to get, keep my Polish up. Well, a few years down the road, early in my journalism career, the Solidarity Trade Union crisis erupts in Poland, the first serious challenge in a long time to Soviet communism in the Eastern Bloc. Uh, and then there was a big crisis there in 1981. My newspaper sent me, a young business reporter, to go cover that wow. because I spoke Polish, because I'd been to the country, because I knew my way around. And that was another big break in my career. Right. And I remember, um, you know, learning another language has always been a set of skills I wish I had. I have tried to learn language, never my strong suit. But I remember you organized um, the director of Saturday Night Live to come, and he said he wished he learned Spanish and he wished he learned another language because. There's been times he's tried to talk to people who did not speak English. And yeah, Don Roy King was here, and he yes. talked about that. And uh, uh, full disclosure, I didn't organize him coming here. Uh, oh, Professor okay. Professor Mazzocco did, um, but it was a it was a terrific appearance. Uh, he's a legendary guy. But yeah, having another language, having access to a whole other culture, whether it's Chinese, uh, whether it's Spanish. Um, you know, I was fortunate to speak French growing up, so I speak French and Polish. Um, these are all things you should do, and if you can, and it's 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 very helpful. But you know, having having that expertise, having that um, desire to to go outside the box. You know, the the other thing I, I tell young journalists often, and it's particularly relevant being in New York. One of the great appeals of our program here in our school is the access to New York City all the fine journalistic institutions that exist there, right? And to do internships and appearances there and get to tour their facilities and talk to their journalists. But if you're trying to break into the business of journalism, there are more journalists per square block in New York City than virtually anywhere on the planet. Mm -hmm. It's one of the toughest places in the world to break into the business. And what I sometimes tell students is if you have the guts to do it, and you have the independence to do it, go somewhere where the journalists aren't, but the important story is. Um, that can be abroad. You have to have a lot of confidence and real good judgment and experience to go abroad, to go to some places that are, that are more risky. But there are corners of the country where people's stories aren't being told. The environmental story, which is hugely interesting right now, is happening in all kinds of places that are not urban, that are not easy to get to, that are not comfortable to be in. That is a real opportunity for young journalists, I think, to 
go cover those undercovered stories uh, around the country and around the world. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with you. I think it's also an experience that many people don't get to have. Right. Um, I also want to mention that my teammate Bryn is here with me as well. She will be asking some questions, but Great. again, very excited <laughs> to be here. Um, so we want to start talking about Hofstra a little bit more. So one of the questions um, our the swing agency has come up with is, in what ways do you use PR to promote the Herbert School of Communication to incoming freshmen who plan to pursue a career in communications versus those who are undecided? So that's a really good question. And first of all, congratulations to the swing agency on, I think, your second year now. Second year, yes. Um, we're very excited to have a student-run agency in the school. It was one of the first things uh, I talked to the faculty about, came from the faculty when I got here two years ago, and I was glad that the faculty were able to stand it up, and we, we want to support it. Um, public relations, communications is, is really important in promoting the school's program. And we, we try to be very strategic about how we do that. Um, as you know, we have a, uh, a sort of a social media director and student engagement director in David Henney, mm-hmm. who is uh, very talented and skillful at using social media uh, and digital media of various sorts to communicate our message. That's, that's one of the things we realized in the time I've been here that we really needed to up, up our game in. Uh, it's where you and your peers spend an enormous amount of your time consuming content. So we need to be in those channels, communicating with prospective students and with their parents in ways that are meaningful to them. We've created many, many more short videos. We push those out on our social media channels and all of our social media channels have shown increased level of engagement and we watch those metrics. Um, We transformed a sort of text-based email that went out to the Herbert School community every week. The SCO Scoop, we turned that into this week at the Herbert School, which as you know is a much more mobile-friendly email that goes out from us once a week. I love those emails. And those emails, I think we have an open rate of over 60% now, which as you'll know from your practice of public relations, that's a very nice open rate to have on any kind of email communication. So we do that. We, we did some TikToks just for fun uh, at one point uh, during the early part of the, the pandemic. Um, we're, you know, even though we're concentrating on all of that, uh, we're also doing a fair amount of snail mail stuff. Uh, I don't think snail mail is completely irrelevant even today. And I think particularly for prospective students, uh, it's something that, that might uh, matter to them, particularly as people are sort of stuck at home a lot, having something that they can look at physically if their eyes get a little tired of screen time uh, is something worth having. We pushed out uh, and produced, and I think you probably saw the view book that we created on behalf of the school. That was a new piece of literature. Actually modeled a little, you'll be interested to know, on a piece of literature that WeWork put out at the time. The, yeah, the size of it and the style of it was very appealing. It's, you know, we felt that the view book kind of in a pocket size was something that, that students like you would be more likely to have around and keep than some large sort of, you know, eight by 10 document or eight and a half by 11 document. Uh, we put a lot of pictures up. The other thing we did was 
I think, refine the message of what we're about here. Because this school has a lot of disciplines, right? We have journalism, media studies, public relations, radio, television, film, audio, digital, all those things. As we talked about it, the, the connective tissue, the theme that runs through all of that is storytelling. That's what this school is really about, storytelling. And one of our early observations was we weren't doing a very good job in the building of telling our own story. So if you go through the hallways of Herbert Hall now, compared to two years ago, if you go through the <laughs> hall, I'll start over just so you can edit it. Sorry. It's fine. If you go through the hallways of Herbert Hall compared to two years ago, you'll see murals, you'll see photographs, you'll see text, you'll see half a dozen video screens that display the activity that goes on behind the closed doors of those hallways all throughout the school. So prospective students who walk through this building, I think, get an immediate sense of dynamism, of lots of student activity. There's a wall, as you know, dedicated to all of the student media organizations, including yours. There's another wall dedicated to our network of success alums, both recent and past alums, and their success. There's another wall dedicated to all the internship organizations we work with. So you can, just by walking around the building, you can get a real sense of what the building is about. And of course, the big quote at the corner, the crossroads, which is the one I love, which is uh, Ira Glass, great stories happen to those who tell them which sort of encapsulates that whole ethos. So uh, in a long, a long roundabout answer to your question, it is important for us to get our story out. As I say to students when we can have them visit here, and I hope we'll be visiting again soon, there are a lot of good communication schools in this country. The trick is to find the one that's the right fit for you. And I think we've done a better job over the last two years using our social media channels, using our literature, using our own building to help a student who walks in the door understand what's different about us, what's special about this place, what are the qualities that make this school different than a Syracuse or an Emerson or, or, or one of the others. Again, all of which I have great respect for, but they are different. Right. And we think we have certain things that set us apart that make us the right fit certain students. Yeah, and going off of that, I think as someone who was once that senior in high school, who was looking at Emerson and looking at Syracuse, you get the feeling also when you're in the building of, all right, I can see myself in Studio B and I can see myself in this classroom and really being involved in the school and you'll know when you're good. Yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's exactly what we were aiming for and mm -hmm. there are, there are big things you can do about that, and there are small things you can do. Right. Um, one of the very simple small things we did, you, you, you mentioned Studio B, so I'll mention it. You know, we renovated Studio B last year. Got a lot of new equipment, we got some generous donations, we were able to make it look a lot better. But one of the other things we did was we flipped it around so that when you're walking through the building and you pass the door of Studio B, you look in and see the set. It was on the opposite side of the room before, around a corner, and when you looked into the room, you didn't see it. Right. That's a, that's a simple adjustment. It didn't make any difference from a production point of view which way it was oriented. But in terms of telling our story, it made a big difference. Right. Which all PR is all about telling a story, too. So exactly right. It goes hand in hand. Um, I know that you um, had a lot to do with like um, 
promotion and like putting on like presidential and like big debates in your like journalism career and then now we do hoster votes here which I know Kate and I have both been involved in in the past um so we kind of wanted to open it up there so I guess the first question um that I would like to ask is um if you could like talk to us about the setup of the debate like and um what you what you would be doing while it's live and what you remember like the most from them so, like what is so the for debate? presidential debates yeah. yes yeah. Yeah, yeah. so there are really two kinds of presidential debates there are primary debates mm -hmm. which happen before the nominations and yeah. they're among a bunch of republican candidates a bunch of democratic candidates that's what i spent the most time on and then typically after the nominations, the Commission on Presidential Debates organizes debates between the two candidates, very occasionally three, but usually the Republican and the Democrat. Uh, and I've had involvement in one or two of those. Primary debates are done by an individual network. CNN will do it, NBC will do it, Fox will do it, whereas the Commission debates are done by an organization called the Commission on Presidential Debates, and all the networks air those simultaneously. Um, they're always really challenging to do. There's a lot of pressure and a lot of tension around those events, because generally the candidates have their demands. They want it to start at this time. They want it to end at this time. Where are they going to stand? Who gets the center podium? Who gets the outside podium? Who gets the first question? There's a lot of that going on. The political party in a primary debate is also concerned about its image, right? So if a bunch of Democratic candidates are debating, the Democratic Party has an interest in making it go a certain way. You, as a producer, have to preserve your independence. So the question structure, figuring out questions to ask among all the candidates, is very complex has to be shrouded in incredible secrecy, right? You don't want any candidate to hear in advance about what question they might be given. And then during the debate itself, as an executive producer, which I was for those, um, you're in a control room truck, generally. It's a mobile truck that sits outside the, uh, the venue, wherever the debate is, sitting generally next to the director and next to uh, other producers who are helping you. And you have communication into the ear of the moderator or the moderators. And you generally go into the debate with a script of questions that's in front of the moderator, in front of you. And what my role would tend to be is to help guide the moderator through the debate. They're concentrating on asking their question, listening to the answer, having a smart follow-up. I can help them by being a bit of extra judgment on, I think we've exhausted this topic, time to move on to the next one. Or, this candidate hasn't spoken now in 10 minutes and you really need to get to that right. candidate. So simple cues into their ear will help with that. I always had a team monitoring timings. So generally a third of the way through a debate, I'd get a report, how are we doing in terms of how long each candidate has had to talk? Um, and you deal with that stuff. And so you work with the director um, to guide to guide through and to, and to work on the timings and so forth. So in advance, there's a, an awful lot of production work setting up the venue, the sets, the lighting, figuring out audiences. Most people don't appreciate that in addition to producing the debate that's on the stage, 
the producing organization, so in that case MSNBC or NBC where I worked, also produces a spin room operation, which is an entirely other media setup where other networks and journalists come to interview the surrogates for the candidate after the debate. How did they do? Uh, why did they say this? Why did they say that? Um, the network hosting the debate sets up that facility as well. So there's an enormous amount of technical and setup work, then a very concentrated period where you craft the questions and do the research on the questions. That's a really elaborate process, too, because you have to pick questions generally across a wide range of topics. You are looking to cover important topics, but also to cover areas of difference. If there's an area that's important in the general election between Democrats and Republicans, but all the Democratic candidates agree on it, it's not particularly helpful to spend 10 minutes at a Democratic debate to have all of them say they have the same position. You're looking for places where they have differences. Um, so you have, to, you have to work on all that questioning, and then, of course, once the debate happens, it's an intense 90 minutes or two hours or whatever it is, uh, monitoring the live broadcast minute by minute. I want to go off of that. So mm -hmm. obviously, debates the past month has been a topic in every news channel. Everyone's eyes has been on it, um, especially with upcoming debates, you know, the whole talk if they're going to happen, they're going to cancel, rescheduled. Take us back to when you were there at the debates and tell us if you can remember any stories or one of your favorite parts of when you're working there um, and kind of just like put us in your shoes of a way you could picture it. Well, there's, there's, um, I can tell you one, it'll, we can talk about another, but one that I remember distinctly is a debate that did not happen. So in the 2016 campaign, um, in, and each of the networks in the primary season works with the campaigns and with the parties to try to get a primary debate. So there's a competition among the networks. So I was working with Sean Spicer, who was then the Republican National Committee uh, chair, no, excuse me, communications director of the Republican National Committee, to schedule debates for NBC. And what ended up happening is CNBC, which is the business network owned by Comcast, uh, got, I think, the first Republican debate. And then, I believe ABC had one after that, some other networks, but NBC and MSNBC and Telemundo had a debate, which I was supervising, that was supposed to happen in Houston uh, some months later. So we went to Houston, worked with the University of Houston on a location, had meetings, everything was good. Well, the CNBC debate happened, and the CNBC debate from the Republican Party's point of view did not go well. They were unhappy with it, they were unhappy with the moderating, they were unhappy with the questions. Donald Trump, in particular, was very, very unhappy. And as a result of their unhappiness with CNBC, which was an organization managed separately from NBC News, the Republicans pulled the debate from NBC and MSNBC. So all of that work that we had done got a call from Sean Spicer saying, we're canceling your debate. Wow. And in the end, CNN ended up doing that debate. They punished NBC for CNBC's debate, which, by the way, was a perfectly fine debate. I don't think there was anything they had to be upset about. 
So that that was an example of how how quickly things can change. Oh, things can change. Um, yeah. I can tell you another debate. This would have been in two thousand four. Uh, during the debate season in 2004 when we had to deal with candidates who were in the Senate and suddenly could not be at the debate. This was a debate we were doing, um, I'm trying to remember where we were doing this debate, but in any event, the, the senators had to be in Washington uh, to participate in a vote in the Senate. So we had to create a way for the senator to virtually appear in the debate. Uh, and that involved getting a studio in Washington that could be locked down in a particular way so that the candidate was isolated from his aides and from other people the same way the candidates on our stage were. Um, that happened at the very last minute. And then in 2012, there were an awful lot of debates and the parties, this, this would have been uh, the second uh, Obama election, so there were no debates on the Democratic side, but the Republican Party was upset at the number of debates that their candidates were being invited to. They couldn't find a way to say no. Uh, and we had one debate where Mitt Romney, who was the presumptive nominee, or getting close to being the presumptive nominee, really didn't want to do the debate. We had scheduled the debate, and I think we got the official answer that he was going to show up about 72 hours before oh the debate happened. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> yeah, so we were, we had it all set up, we had podiums, but we just didn't know whether he was going wow. to show up or not. And then I finally got a call uh, that he was going to show up. But that, that debate cycle was really, I think that was where the needle tilted into the red for the parties and they started to assert more control because there was actually a situation in New Hampshire where both ABC and we, NBC, had a debate scheduled. Uh, ABC's was in a Saturday night time slot, so the debate, I think, went from 11.30 to 12.30 or 10, 11 to 12. It was late. And our debate was in the meet the press time slot the next morning, which was 8.30. Mm -hmm. So the candidates had to do a debate, which is pretty exhausting, ending at midnight or 12.30 or whatever, drive 100 miles to the other end of the state and get up to do a debate with us at 8.30 in the morning. Wow. And they, none of them were happy with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Especially on Sunday morning. My dad always had me to press on, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was David Gregory moderated that debate. Wow. So I want to now talk about, kind of for our last bit of um, our podcast, so we talk about the importance of the debate, the importance of the Harvard School of Communication, all the resources we have. What is the importance of being part of Hofstra Votes Live, especially this upcoming? I know there are students who are remote, um, but tell us about the importance of that and in being involved in the school come all together for the for people's future and careers. Got it. So, so I. I I love the Hofstra Votes Live project. Um, this is the second big one we've done. We did some classes last spring, but we did the midterm elections in 2018, right after I got here, and now we're doing the general election. There's a whole lot of ways it's important. One is it's important, and I think a great opportunity for the students who get involved, because elections don't happen very often. And to be able to really participate in 
the coverage of an election, the way it happens in the real world, with numbers coming in and news happening in front of you, uh, and having to report a very complicated story live, that's a tremendous learning opportunity and a challenge. And I think for students to have that opportunity is a great thing. From the school's point of view, I think the other advantage is it allows us to bring all the disciplines of the school together. I've talked about this a lot since I've been here, that the kind of siloing that can happen, where you're either a television student and you're involved in heat, or you're an audio radio student, or a sports fan and you're involved in, in uh, RHU, or you're a filmmaker, you involve a Hofstra Filmmakers Club, or you're a PR student, so you're super active in PRSSA. If I weren't the dean of a communications school, but the CEO of a media business, I would say, well, this is my media conglomerate. I have print over here with the Chronicle and Pulse, and I have radio, and I have television, and I have digital, and I have marketing and PR, and I would want all these people to work together. And Hofstra Votes Live is a real opportunity to do that. We use both the radio station and the television network and the PR students and the filmmakers and the technically inclined students among us, and they all come together to manage this. So that, that is another real world lesson because that is how the world works these days in media, right? You have to be able to navigate through all of those things and at least have a basic understanding of all of them. Um, the other thing I'm really hoping we're going to achieve this time, because last, the first time we did this, I was brand new here, and it was the idea came to me late, and we sort of scrambled. We've had more time now, even though we're sitting here three weeks minus a day until the election. But we have student leadership in place, and I am really working hard to make sure the students actually lead this project. Um, because that's, above everything else, that's the learning experience. It's the same learning experience you get, I'm sure, at the agency and that students get in heat, but just kind of on steroids. To put this whole project together, solve problems, meet deadlines, figure out how it's all going to get organized. Because it, when it's all said and done, it's going to involve anywhere from 150 to 200 people uh, doing four to five hours of, of live broadcasting. And there are a lot of challenges to be met. And, and Seeing the student leaders, you know, we, we the, the sort of advisors and faculty, once we saw the interest level uh, come back in the interest forms, we met and basically selected a leadership core. And from that point on, the leadership core has been doing the work with some advice now and again and some help from the faculty advisors and some, some of the experienced people on the staff. But I really hope students will be able to look back on it and own it as their achievement and that they led it and they organized it. It's, it's, it's fun, it's interesting, it's one of the most important elections the country has gone through in a very long time. And from a career standpoint, I think it will serve students well. Whatever part of this you have, just having been through something like that will give you a level of confidence. Uh, when you go into a workplace and somebody puts in front of you a task you've never done before or a piece of software you've never seen before, that can be really daunting. But when you've done a project like this, 
which you've never done before, and you get through it and you're proud of the results, and you didn't melt down doing it, you'll go into the next situation like that in a workplace with more confidence than some of your peers who've never had that chance. So that's, that's what it's about to me. Another important project we've launched at the school that I'd just like to mention briefly uh, is the Long Island Advocate. And the Long Island Advocate is uh, the successor to Long Island Report. Um, but it's a new website we stood up about a year ago. And we are really hopeful that this will become a resource to the community around Hofstra. Uh, the community around us has a lot of problems and a lot of challenges. And it is a news desert. There isn't really anybody doing the stories of this community. And I think our journalism students and some of our PR students who've gotten very involved in the Long Island Advocate have a chance to build up the Long Island Advocate into a website that will report on those stories and fulfill a certain responsibility we have as an educational institution to the community around us, the community that we're a part of. Uh, and I really hope that um, our public relations students will have roles in promoting that and getting the word out in the community that that exists. It's another piece of that sort of media conglomerate I was talking about that when we put our heads together, we can, we can do good. Yes. Dean Luke, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for all your insights. The Swing Agency appreciates it so much. This has been great. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, and again, congratulations to the agency. And uh, we've got you a small office now in the building. I wish yes. you could be there more often. But, um, <laughs> we do too. We, we hope all of that will come back, and, and congratulations on, on all of your success. Thank um, you.